So thankful for the opportunity to sing. Thank you for the worship team to just set our hearts in the right place as we go to God's word this morning. And that is exactly what we're going to do together as we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5, we encourage you to open your Bibles there. If for some reason you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we have two of our strongest men in the church who are hauling some Bibles up and down the aisles there. You just throw your hand in the air. Uh, They will be more than happy to make sure you get one. Uh, We love for you to be able to follow along in your Bible uh, with us this morning. Um, If for some reason you don't have a Bible, um, then please uh, take this one. You don't need to return it to us. We would just love for you to be able to have a copy of God's Word to be able to follow along uh, with us uh, together this morning. So Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And I want us to take a slightly unconventional uh, passage for Easter Sunday. Traditionally, it's common to go to one of the great resurrection narratives and one of the four Gospels or to look at the implications of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. But as we celebrate and commemorate the resurrection this morning, my desire is to take us back into the heart of Christ to help us see both his power and his compassion in the face of death, to do what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And as such, I trust that the story uh, that we're going to look at this morning will be an encouragement to you as together we bask in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is common for us around here whenever we get to the Uh, reading of God's word because of the reverence of God's word, God speaking to us. Uh, We stand and honor the reverence of God's word. So if you're able, I know we just sat down, but if you would be willing to stand one more time as we read from Mark chapter 5 this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 21 and read down through the end of the chapter. So Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, Mark writes this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under the hand of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said to herself, if I would touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? A child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Telitha kumi, which means, my little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the living God this morning. You may be seated, and as we go into our time of meditation, let's pray and ask for God's blessing and favor on our time together today. Father, now as we have been exposed to your word and we see before us this amazing encounter, Jesus with these two broken families, pray, Lord, now that you would help us to see ourselves in this story, to help us see of our need too for the resurrection power that Jesus Christ alone brings to our lives. As weak, sinful, broken people, Lord, we are frail and we are often unable to understand your word. I, as a frail, broken individual, am weak to be able to proclaim the glories of your word. And yet you use both these means through proclamation and through hearing to transform your people. And so I pray that your power would be manifest in us here this morning. That we may know you and the power of your resurrection for the glory of your great name, we ask. Amen. Well, as we, begin, as we begin our time together this morning, I would like for you to picture the following situation with me. All is calm and quiet in the early morning hours of a small town until the silence is broken in the early hours of the morning by the cries of a newborn baby. The young mother and the father are delighted to welcome their first child into this world, something that many of you can relate to. They're even more excited to learn that what God has given to them is none other than a beautiful baby girl who secretly they really were wanting other than a boy, right? The newness of a new family begins and they are excited to enter into the journey together. And yet across town, another woman breaks the silence of the night with her own cries. However, they are not the cries of delight or the cries of joy. Rather, they are the cries of pain and discomfort. 
She recognizes that something is not quite right with her body. She has experienced bleeding before, but nothing quite like this. This time it feels far different. Press the fast forward button on this story. A year later, and the family across town, this young couple is soaking up precious moments with their baby girl. She begins to do what new babies do. They start to take their first steps. She begins to babble her first words, most likely mommy or daddy. Life feels as sweet as it can get for this precious family. However, the woman across town has not gotten any better. The bleeding she began to experience the previous year has not ceased. It seems like things are actually getting worse for her. It's now been more than a year since she has moved away from her family, since she has worshipped in her local center of worship. Uh, More than a year since she has received uh, nothing but blank stares and perplexed looks from all the physicians that she has gone to see. Hit that fast forward button again and we are a few years later and we find this young family thriving. The little girl is growing and developing. She is learning the the essential skills that a a young woman does, learning to, to cook alongside her mother in the kitchen. She's learning from her father all about God, especially as her father is advancing in the local center of worship, rising through the ranks and becoming a more influential individual in their community. Their life is good, but their thriving is met by the mere surviving of the woman across town. Her condition is not getting any better. In fact, it grows far worse. More doctors step in to try to help while others step in because they see a a financial opportunity. After all, if this woman is willing to pay any price to receive treatment that will make her better... Why not throw their hat into the ring and allow her to pay some significant price for it? And so her suffering grows even worse. Her isolation increases and her hope is quickly slipping through her fingers. One last time, press that fast forward button on this narrative. It has now been 12 years since that little girl was born. She's now essentially a young woman. But the excitement of a new day is quickly met with concern. The father and the mother wake up to find that something is not quite right with their daughter. She is sick. She is struggling. She is scared. And so are they. So they call the the local physicians to come and to examine their daughter, to to give some type of diagnosis, some type of medication, something to, to be able to help her get better. And the news that they receive is far from what they expected. In fact, it is the worst possible news that they could give her. They tell the young mom and dad, you really need to get your things in order. Because we're going to be shocked if she makes it through the day. Mother and father sink low onto the floor into a puddle of tears as they contemplate life without their little girl. 
And if that's not enough, the morning of the day grows even worse across town. As the sick and diseased woman turns over her money bag to realize there's nothing left. The last of her savings has been depleted. There is nothing more that can be done. There's nothing more to offer. Twelve long years of suffering and there is nothing left to do. And yet, it's at this very moment that this desperate woman and this desperate father receive an interesting report. You see, there is a man who is returning to the region, a man who has caused quite the stir in recent months. A preacher, they call him, one who has authority, but an authority that looks very different from that of the religious leaders of the day. It's, it's powerful, but it's also quite controversial because it is so different from anything that they had previously heard but they had not just heard reports about his words. They've also heard reports of his works. I mean, can the rumors really be true? These rumors of the lame walking, the blind seeing, demons removed, sins forgiven. It's too, surely it is too good to be true. And yet it is at this point, the point in complete and utter desperation that both the father and this desperate woman rise from their spot and begin their pursuit of this man they call Jesus. You see, both of them provide the picture and the basis for what Mark wants us to see this morning, which is that the power of Jesus brings new life to those who believe. The power of Jesus brings new life to those who believe. The following story shows us the radical, life-changing power of saving faith, particularly through the resurrection of Jesus. Of what happens when your life is united to Jesus by simply believing in his finished saving work. And so as we walk through our passage this morning, I encourage you to marvel both at the compassion and the power of Jesus that he shows towards those who trust in him. And to help us unpack the story, we're going to divide it into three scenes, three acts like you would with a play. And we're going to begin in scene one in verses 24, or 21 through 24, where we see a desperate father who is reduced to nothing. A desperate father who is reduced to nothing. We're introduced to this man in this section whose name is Jairus. Now, it's not often in the Gospels that we receive the name of the person who receives the miracle. And so this tells us something of this man's importance or that uh, they, they want him to be remembered by this encounter. But verse 21, he is searching for this man that they call Jesus. Jesus is returning uh, in verse 21 to this region from the other side of the sea. Well, what's he been doing all this time? Well, if you were to go back to chapter 4 and chapter, uh, early parts of chapter 5, you'd see Jesus has not been idle. 
And in fact, Jesus has been quite busy. He spends most of chapter 4 teaching large crowds of people about the nature of the kingdom of God. These crowds are, are huddling. They are uh, thronging around him. And, and at the point when they seem like they need him most, Jesus says, let's go to the other side of the sea. There's something over there we need to do. And so he and his disciples get into the boat and they cross the other side of the sea, but not without issue, right? Chapter 4, 35 to 41 tells us that this amazing storm, unlike any that they had ever experienced before, rises to the surface and their lives are in peril before Jesus stands up, rebukes the storm with a word, and what happens? It stops. This one they call Jesus has great power, power even over nature. And he crosses over into the region of the Gerasenes in early uh, parts of chapter 5. And this man with thousands of spirits within him attacks them, runs after them, tries to rebuke them. But Jesus, in return, rebukes the demons, drives them out. And the disciples see, okay, this guy, Jesus, doesn't just have power over nature. He has power over the spiritual realm as well. There's something significant going on here. And now, as he crosses back over into this region, the stage is set for his power to be displayed over the most decisive of enemies, which is what brings Jairus here today. Here, Jairus is identified as a ruler of the synagogue. And when you think about a ruler of a synagogue, don't think like the pastor of a local church. Think about a guy who's kind of got a very uh, versatile role. He is one that is kind of a hybrid between a, a librarian and a worship leader and a custodian. He really is an influential leader in this uh, and uh, leading this local center of worship for the Jewish people. Desperation comes over the condition of his daughter. He comes, he finds Jesus, and he reveals to Jesus that his daughter is at the point of death. This is not to say that she is on the, the path towards death. It's not that she's on the trajectory towards death. It's the fact that any moment, any second, she could die. It's a dire situation this man is not just some religious influencer coming to Jesus. He is a daddy. He is a father of a daughter. And it is this desperation that drives him to Jesus. And this could be viewed by many people as a very contentious decision on the part of Jairus. After all, Jesus is a somewhat controversial figure at this point in his ministry. Chapters 2 and 3 of Mark reveal very clearly that Jesus isn't exactly making friends among the religious crowd. In fact, he's making a lot of enemies. He's stirring up trouble. He is challenging the religious establishment. Guess what? Religious leaders don't like that very much. They don't like it at all. And yet, in Jairus' complete and utter desperation, in verse 23, he casts himself at the feet of Jesus and implores him to come to his house. Come with me. Please, I beg you, come with me. And I love the simplicity of verse 24. What does verse 24 say? And he went with him. He went. He went with this desperate father, which leads us into the second scene of our story this morning, scene two, where a despised woman is restored to life. Despised woman is restored to life. So this 
group begins this journey to Jairus' home. It's not just Jesus and Jairus and, and Jesus' disciples. It's the whole crowd, the crowds that are pressing in around the shoreline with Jesus. They hear he's going to do this miracle, and they are all following him in this parade through the town. And in the midst of this great crowd is someone else who had heard of what Jesus had done. She had heard of the reports of this great preacher and miracle worker. It is none other than the woman at the beginning of our story. The same one who has been afflicted with this discharge of blood for the past 12 years. This is significant suffering. Significant pain. Significant discouragement, isolation, shame, you name it. We don't know if this is some type of uh, hemorrhage that she is struggling from or, or, or regular routine menstrual bleeding, but it is a condition that no matter what makes her, in the eyes of the Jewish people, ritually, ceremonially unclean and unwelcomed by everyone around her. She has been living in this nightmare for 12 long years. Years. Let me ask you, how many 12-year-olds do we have in the room this morning? Raise your hand. We have 12-year-olds. We got a couple 12-year-olds. Imagine the entirety of your life suffering from an affliction. It's a long time. The entirety of what you have known. And this suffering was compounded by the fact that there was no hope. No more hope for her. Not only did she not get better, she grew worse, especially verse 26 tells us at the hands of doctors who were maybe genuinely trying to help her, but also at the hands of those who saw an opportunity for financial gain to exploit her, knowing that she was willing to fork over whatever money to be able to get better. It's gross. It's wicked. And it adds to the desperation of this story and what she is experiencing and yet, verse 27 says that she had heard the reports about Jesus. Like Jairus, desperation drives her to Jesus as the only option left. If this doesn't work, there's nothing left. There's nothing more to be done. Remember, her condition left her spiritually, ritually unclean in the eyes of the people. That meant no worshiping in the local synagogue. That meant no social interactions with family and friends and others that she knew. And it certainly meant no touching. Her, her life was essentially a giant billboard that says, Do not touch. Do not touch. Do not touch. And yet, what does she do in her complete and utter desperation but touch the fringe of the garment that Jesus is wearing? She knew in her mind that anything, anything will do, even if I can just get the smallest little piece of clothing to just barely touch it, maybe that will be enough. And I love what Mark does in verse 29. Look what he says. He uses one of his absolute favorite words that he uses throughout the gospel. Verse 29. Immediately. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up. 
She immediately notices that something has changed. Relief has come in a way that was not expected or ever known. She hasn't known this in years, but she does know that something in this moment is different. It is different than it has been in a long, long time. There was something that Jesus provided her that no one else could provide. And now the instantaneous power that she felt was also felt by Jesus. He too notices in verse 30 that something is different. He notices that power somehow has gone out from him. And in the midst of that, he has the audacity, verse 30, to say, who touched me? Who who touched me? And if ever there was a moment for sarcasm in the Bible, this is it. You can almost read it in his disciples' response to him, right? They look at him and they say, are you kidding me? Jesus, dude, look at the crowds around you, right? Look at everything that is happening to you. We are shoulder to shoulder with every single person going down these narrow streets and you have the audacity to say, who touched me? Every year our students go to a camp down in Carlinville for the summer and for those of you who know anything about the, the, the time leading into the chapel speci- sessions, there's a, uh, a bit commons area where students like to gather so that they can rush in and get the best seats in the house. There is no such thing as social distancing in those rooms. You are shoulder to shoulder. You are pinned against one another. Uh, this is the place to find future spouses because you're like right next to them, right? It's, it's awkward. It's weird. But you never have to ask yourself, who touched me? Because basically everybody is touching you at that very moment. And so it's almost humorous that Jesus asks this. But when you think about it, he asks the question for a particular reason. Because we know Jesus. Jesus knows who touched him. He is not oblivious to what just happened. He is not naive, but he asks the question to provide the opportunity to draw this woman out so that he can specifically, in front of the whole crowd of people, draw attention to her faith. Because look at verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And when he says the whole truth, she spills her guts. She tells her story. She explains everything to Jesus. All the suffering, all the pain, everything that she's endured, the complete point of desperation that led her to this very moment. Right there in the middle of the street, They have a conversation. This parade stops and Jesus halts everything to hear this woman's story. And remember, who is still with the crowd at this moment? Jairus. Remember what we said before? There's not really moments to lose. I picture Jairus in the story standing right there while everything's unfolding, doing one of these. Glancing between her and the path that still lies ahead, anxiously thinking, Jesus, we don't have time for this. Every moment counts. 
Time is ticking away. There's not a moment to lose. And here Jesus is stooping down, talking to this woman who has been despised and rejected. As she pours out her heart to Jesus, we don't have time for this. Lady, I was here first, right? You ever been cutting the grocery line at, 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 at Kroger? It hurts, but nothing like this. We don't like this. Jesus is singularly fixed on this woman and the shame and the isolation she must have felt for these last 12 years. And he does something, oh, so special in verse 34. Do you see it? He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Think about how that must have made her feel for a moment. Because for the last 12 years, this woman probably felt anything but a daughter of Israel. Anything of a child of God. Not able to worship, not able to be around people. Felt mostly like an outsider. And yet Jesus calls her daughter. And he says to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. To say peace or that, uh, that famous word shalom to someone was not like saying, hey, we're, we're good. Everything that's happened, we're all right. There's, there's, no, there's no conflict. There's no issue here. No, for Jesus to say peace is rather to declare wholeness, that everything is now in the right place. Everything fits as it should. Your life is now full. It is now complete. You can go in peace. And this then leads us into the final scene of our story this morning, scene three, where we see a deceased daughter raised to life in verses 35 to 43. This story goes from great celebration to great lamentation quickly. As Jairus receives report from those in his household that his daughter has died. They're too late. They delayed too long. There's no need for the teacher anymore. You can let him go. Let's just, let's just start with the preparations. Let's just get on with it. It's interesting that later in this section, we learn about this daughter. And how old was she? Twelve. She was twelve. How long had the woman in the middle of our story suffered from her bleeding? Twelve years. Two lives that for so long had existed and run parallel with one another have now met their intersection point in the person and work of Jesus. Twelve short years of life and twelve long years of death meet at the point of Jesus. And the men come, give Jairus the news, and say there's no longer for Jesus. He can go his way. And I love what Jesus says in verse 36. Overhearing what they were talking about, Jesus pulls Jairus to the side. He looks at him and says, Jairus, do not fear. Most common command in all the Bible, by the way, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Only what? Believe. It is more important now than ever that you believe that I am still able. Do you believe that? 
You came to me because you believed that. Do you still believe that? Even though the situation has gotten worse, even though your life has become more messed up and more painful, do you still believe that? You came to me broken and desperate. Are you still that way? Then believe in me now more than you ever have. And so they go. He follows Jairus. He brings with him his closest inner circle of Peter, James, and John. They arrive at the home where the grieving process has already started. Verses 38 and 39 point us to these professional mourners, something that I can not even begin to relate to, but people who are called in to, to cry, to make music, to really set the environment of death and grieving to assist in that process. And in verse 39, we get insight into what Jesus is about to do. When he entered, he said to them, why are you making such a commotion? Why are you weeping? The child is not dead, but she is what? She's asleep. She's just sleeping. Points us to what Jesus is about to do because Jesus is not lying. Jesus is not confused. Jesus is not naive to medical diagnoses. This is, in fact, Jesus' favorite illustration for death, sleep. He used it later on in his ministry as it related to Lazarus. When Lazarus died, he is not dead. He is just asleep. He associates death with sleep, showing the temporal nature of it. These people think it's a joke. They think Jesus is being completely disrespectful to the whole situation, laugh at him. Jesus thinks they're a joke, so he says, well, you guys got to go. <laughs> he puts them out of the house, and he tells Jairus, lead me to your daughter. Point me in the right direction. And he follows the family to the girl's bedside where she lays, where her life has ended, lifeless body remains. And Jesus is something interesting. You see, in this culture, it would have been considered ritually unclean to touch a corpse. We, we see this unclean language throughout, right? This woman unable to touch Jesus because she herself was unclean. But now we see Jesus doing something that in that culture to touch a dead corpse would be considered unclean in the minds of good, righteous Jews. But what does he do? He goes in, he takes her by the hand and notice he doesn't become unclean. In fact, his touch becomes the basis for cleanliness because it imparts new life. In taking her hand, Jesus speaks to her and one of the few phrases that is preserved in the original Aramaic that he would have spoken then, and he says to her, Talitha kumi. And that, will, that word there for Talitha, this word for little girl is actually a phrase that means little lamb. My little lamb. It's a word of, of tenderness, of endearment. In the same way that he called the woman in the street daughter, he calls this little girl his little lamb. And guess what he says? You've slept too long. Your time is done. Wake up. Arise from your slumber. Imagine this situation unfolding for Jairus and his wife watching everything happen. How quick do things happen? Verse 42, and what's that word again? Immediately, immediately the girl got up and began walking. I mean, this is complete restoration. She doesn't just open her eyes and lay there and be like, whoa, what just happened to me? 
right? He doesn't just bring her back to life. She is living. She gets up. She is walking around. She is fully restored to who she once was. And immediately, as she is healed, immediately all are overcome with amazement. This is something that none of them had ever seen before. The disciples, think about it, had just seen him calm a storm. They had seen him drive out demons, and now they have just seen him raise a girl back to life. This is power unlike anything this world has ever known. A life restored, a family restored, a beautiful moment that ends with Jesus giving two commandments. First, don't tell anyone about this. Which almost makes you laugh, right? You think to yourself, don't tell anybody about this? How can we keep silent from what we've just heard? But Jesus wants to remind them that the time is still not yet. It is still early in his ministry. There cannot be confusion about who he is and what he has been sent to accomplish. The buzz of this type of event could prove problematic for his ministry moving forward. And so it needed to be kept a secret for now. And so they would do that. But then notice the second command. More strangely, the very ending of the story, the curtain drops on the command to go to the kitchen. Get this girl something to eat. After all, she is a teenager. She she needs some food. She needs some grub. And we just think to ourselves, that's, quite honestly, that's a really weird way to end a story, isn't it? Why does Jesus say this here? What's he trying to show? What's he trying to prove? Well, let me ask you this. When Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples in the upper room, what did he ask for? You guys got any snacks? Pretty hungry here. Got any food that I can eat? And what do they do? They give him a piece of broiled fish and he eats it in front of them. Showing that what they are seeing is not just some illusion. It's not just some spirit of Jesus as before them. No, it is a physical resurrected Christ that has been put before them. What these people are seeing in this story is none other than a divine miracle of God that has just happened. This girl is completely physically restored to this family. That is the power over life itself. And so what would a story like this have to offer our hungering hearts on this Resurrection Sunday? What food for thought can we gather from this account? I want to give you a few points of application this morning, the first of which is this. Desperation often drives us to the only hope that we have left in Jesus. You see, God often has to drive us to the breaking point before we will trust in him and run to him. Some of you possibly in this room have run from Christ your entire life. Some of you have rebel children. Some of you have unbelieving family that want nothing to do with Jesus. But God often allows people to get to their lowest, most desperate point before they realize their need for his saving grace. After all, that's the story of the prodigal son, right? He had to get to his most deepest, desperate point before he realized just how good the grace of his father really was. And such was also true for Jairus, for the despised woman in our story here this morning. It was the point of desperation that drove them to the saving grace of Jesus. So church, do not despise this desperation, but rather see it as an act of grace on the part of God that ultimately drives you closer into the heart of Christ. Secondly, 
One thing is necessary, and that is to believe. One thing is necessary, and that is to believe. I want to draw your attention back to something early on in the story, because back in verse 23, what did Jairus want Jesus to do? It's not that he just wanted Jesus to, to, to heal his daughter. How did he want Jesus to heal his daughter? He said, come, come to my house, lay your hand on her, and she will be better. Let me ask you a question. This is a question I had to wrestle with last year when I was studying this passage. Why didn't Jesus just say the word and heal her? I mean, after all, we know in other places in the Gospels, Jesus is able to do that. In fact, Jesus does do that. People come to him wanting healing for themselves or for somebody else, and Jesus doesn't even have to touch them. He doesn't even have to see them. He doesn't even have to be in the same town as them. He can just say the word, and they could be healed immediately. So why does he just do that here? Well, do you think that Jesus knew in the back of his mind that there was someone else who needed him as well? After all, if Jesus just heals Jairus' daughter by speaking a word in that moment, what does not happen in this story? The woman with the flow of blood does not encounter Jesus. This is the compassionate, loving, tender nature of Jesus on display. And I think he knew, I think he knew that he had another divine appointment that day. And that appointment was important for another reason. Because he needed to be delayed. He needed to be interrupted. Because we do not have a story of death and the power of resurrection apart from this little girl dying. As crazy as it sounds, Jesus knew all of this beforehand. He planned it so that this little girl would die so that... He could one moment look Jairus in the eyes and say to him, do you believe? Do you trust that I am able to do this for you? This woman's interruption in the middle of the street becomes an object lesson in faith so that Jesus is able to point Jairus back to her and say, Jairus, look at what she just demonstrated for you. Do you believe that too? Do you believe that I have this power to save your daughter? Because I can, and I will, and I want you to trust in me. I am calling you to do the exact same thing. These pieces all fall into place for a particular cohesive reason that we would believe in Jesus. As with Jairus, Jesus is calling us to believe the trust that he is able, to trust that he is good, to trust that he has the power to do this for you. To you here this morning, the truth remains the same. What you need more than anything this morning is to believe, but you don't need to believe in yourself. You don't need to believe in some type of system. You need to believe in a person. You need to unite yourself by faith to the one who is able to heal you. You need to unite yourself to Christ by faith because your spiritual heritage, your family, they cannot save you. Your good deeds and trying to be a good person, they cannot save you. Neither of those things are what bring new life. Only one thing is necessary and essential and that is faith. It is belief. It is trust in Jesus. 
So surrender every other thought you have to the truth of believing in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Later on in Jesus' ministry in the story of him raising Lazarus from the dead, he identifies himself in this way as the resurrection and the life. He says in John eleven twenty five 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and life. Though a person die, he shall live. This is a reminder of the truth that you are called to believe in today, that Jesus brings new life. And he does so to those who believe, who trust, who surrender everything to him. He is the very one who conquered the grave. He is the one who has the power and the authority over the final enemy of death. But his resurrection power isn't just about things that are yet to come in the future. No, they bring newness of life now because 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ and if, if anyone believes in Jesus, if they have united themselves to him by faith, if they are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Faith in Jesus makes you new. You are a new person in Christ Jesus. What was desperate about your condition and your sin, your wickedness, your decaying life, it's made new in Christ. And the question of these verses is still the same for us today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is not only just the resurrection, but he is the life, that he is your life? Because if you do, there are blessings that abound to you because faith in Jesus makes you a child of God. There is such a great emphasis in this story on that term, daughter. Jesus heals a daughter. He calls a woman his daughter. There is a beautiful connection here that reminds us that faith in Jesus unites us to the family of God. That when we trust in Jesus, he brings us into his spiritual family. As 1 John 3, 1 reminds us that we should be called children of God. That is a privilege. That is a blessing that abounds to every single one of us. Do not for one moment forget how Jesus sees you when you are united to him and his family. He sees you as his child. And as his child, there is no greater joy than to be at peace with Jesus. What did Jesus say to this woman as he sent her away? He says, go in peace. And that's appropriate when we consider our new life in Jesus because the Bible describes this new relationship as one of peace. We learned from Romans chapter 5 on Friday night where we were reminded that we were once enemies of God. Paul begins that chapter by saying in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been united to Christ by faith, we have peace with God. In other words, we once were not neutral. We were not just in the safe zone. We were hostile. We were enemies. We were on the other side of enemy lines. But now we have been brought into his family. And as those who are part of Christ's family, we are far richer than any millionaire or billionaire that this world has to offer. Why? Because the inheritance that is laid up for us after this life is so much better than anything that money can buy. And one of those rich rewards that awaits every single one of us who are united to faith in Jesus is resurrection. That resurrection awaits 
all those who trust in Jesus. The ending of this story reminds us of what awaits all, for all who put their faith in Jesus. Death is not the end. Death does not have the victory. It has no more sting over those who are God's people. The resurrection changes everything. Paul understood that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, where he said, if anyone is hoping in this life only, then we are of most people to be pitied. If in Christ that's all we have is this life, pardon me, but you're kind of pathetic people. If I was doing my job, if the, if the resurrection was not a reality, then really my encouragement to you today would be go forth, live, make much of this life, seek all the pleasure, all the joy, all the happiness you want because there is nothing after this if the resurrection is not true. But guess what? It is true. Christ is indeed alive. And because of that, by putting your faith in Jesus, your life, church, is not lame. It is not pitied. It is not to be wasted. In fact, this is only the beginning of the joys that God has in store for you, as verse 20 says. But in fact, Christ has been raised, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice that term again, of those who have what? Fallen asleep. What did he say about the little girl's condition? She is not dead, but she is what? She's merely asleep. As the first fruits of resurrection, Jesus was the first taste. He was the Costco sampling of what is yet to come for all who put their trust in Jesus. Because for anyone who is united to Jesus by faith, God says, even though you die, yet shall you live. And so the question for each and every one of you this morning is the same question that Jesus asked Martha that very same day that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And he looked directly at her and he asked, upon saying, I have the resurrection and life, he asked her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Only one thing is necessary. Only one thing is most essential. That you believe in the power of the resurrected Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the immense privilege it has been to see the power of Christ and his resurrection on display for us. And Lord, as we close out our time this morning, as we go into the rest of our day of worship, as we contemplate the resurrection of Christ, Lord, help us to marvel at the newness that Jesus brings to us, not just this day, but every single day. That our life is not pointless, our life is not wasted. That Lord, because we have been united to Jesus by faith, we are new creations. You have raised us to new life. And now we would pray that you would help us to walk in that truth. Help us to magnify Christ with our lives, to point other to the resurrection hope and the resurrection power that Jesus can bring to them as well. And we will give you all the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.